And welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast hosted by some of your friends, maybe from Philadelphia. Hopefully we're your friends. Uh, I'm Sam, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dave, Connor, and Christine. And we are starting, starting, are we? Brand new theme. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, can I do this over again? I think that's stupid. (laughs) Well, I was going to say brand new theme and a brand new year. Right. Oh, do you want to do that? No, no, no. I was just like, I was going to, after you said that, I was going to add that sentence too. I feel yeah, like after like, four years, we should leave this as is and just, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that this is, I think this works. People come for the, people come for the, 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 the uh, candor. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, everyone who listens knows us. So like, whatever. Um, <laughs> everybody, we are doing a brand new theme, uh, celebrating another year, four years of butter with that. It's insane to think that we've been doing this for so long. And it feels like at this point, most of it through Zoom during the pandemic. Uh, to celebrate four years of butter, we are revisiting our very first theme, which was underrated movies. and. I'm so excited to share with you my pick and then to share all of my co-hosts pick as we go throughout the month. Um, But before we dive into that, curious to my co-hosts, how are you doing and have you watched anything cool lately? Stop everything. Have you guys seen Elvis yet? (laughs) (laughs) No. No. Okay. Okay. Well, I've seen Baz Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. two and a half times now uh half of it which was in theaters there was a uh, fire alarm uh so then we wound up buying it at our house just for the opportunity to watch it together and i have got to say that i can't say with confidence that it is good i can't say with confidence that it's bad i can say with full confidence that it is unhinged and deranged and Though it is far from the best movie having been made this year, it might be my favorite movie of the year so far, just because I've never seen anything like it, and it's truly insane. Uh, it's now on uh, HBO Max, so for the uh, curious, uh, if you don't want an accurate biopic of someone's life, but uh, instead a literal morphine-fueled fever-slash-death dream, of a narrative, then uh, watch Elvis and uh, let me know what you think. Dave, the video that you sent us of how the screen froze and then the alarm going on in the background, Mm -hmm. I think about that every once in a while and chuckle to myself. Well, I've thought about this movie every day since I've seen (laughs) it. So uh, it's a weird thing going on with me right now. Do you you dream in Elvis? No, I don't have... Uh, I don't think my brain could uh, could create a Baz Luhrmann-esque dreamscape. I'm not quite that uh, insane, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really watched too much lately. I think last time I talked about House of the Dragon. That's rolling along. Watched the first two episodes. Um, very good so far. It's nice to have like a good Game of Thrones product out there that's exciting the fan base. Because it's pretty wild to go from the biggest TV show that ever existed to then a year later, nobody giving a shit. So it's nice that people are kind of giving a shit. And episode two had more viewers than episode one. 
which is like unheard of for like any show ever to like add viewers. So House of the Dragon's pretty cool. Hopefully they can stick the landing through 10 episodes and a whole lot of time jumps. Mm. Having no context for Game of Thrones, is it worth just starting with this show? Because it is a prequel, right? Yeah, it's like, I don't know, what, 100, almost 200 years before the show Game <laughs> of Thrones starts. I don't know. I haven't rewatched the original HBO show in a long time, mainly because of the last couple seasons. Um, but at, once season one's over, I'll let you know if it's worth kind of jumping into this. But first two episodes have been pretty stellar. So I currently have the benefit of having a housemate that works at a movie theater and can get me into movies for free. And I took this opportunity. I'll talk about the other movie I saw recently next week. But I did finally see Top Gun and I saw it in the theaters and it was bad. Like, oh, really? Yeah. And I was like, I felt like I had the right expectations going into it. I loved you. You guys know me, listeners, you probably know this by now that like I'll pretty much turn out for a Tom Cruise film any day. But it's just like bad in all the wrong ways. The flight, the flying sequences, wonderful. Great. If the movie was just all flying, flying, I would actually be quite into it. But the dialogue, and I wasn't even, I was going in with not huge expectations as far as like screenplay and dialogue, but like it couldn't even meet those like kind of low expectations. You know, Write us an email. Tell me what you think. And it's not like I like, like I like the first one and it's a lot of fun, but I don't like, you know, like hold it to like really high standards. So I was like, yeah, this will be fun. Who cares? And just not, not, not great. Like it might be the only negative review of this movie I've heard. I, okay. You should probably see it because there is a very specific sequence that I want to talk through, which is, it is specifically the complete lack of chemistry between Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly. Mm. <laughs> like the way, and it's not any, I mean, their performances aren't great, but it's, it's the choices that the movie made and, and the situations that the movie uh, put them in and the way that these scenes are cut is just mind-bogglingly bad and so i want to talk through this so see it i want to talk top gun i just yeah just wasn't into it the box office story of top gun mavericks wild because it was the number one movie on memorial day and then the number one movie on labor day week and i saw it i um, saw it labor day i was like mm-hmm. i can't go out so watch a bit of american propaganda <laughs> military <laughs> propaganda i should say um, sorry, Connor, go ahead. But yeah, no, I, I was just saying this is like one of the most successful movies of all time by far. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy for it because it, you know, it's like all about, and I think Tom Cruise fought to not have it go on streaming. Right. He like was like, no, people need to see it in the theaters, blah, blah, blah. But I'm curious. I want to know what other people think. My little cousin, and by little, I mean 17 years old, uh, she saw Top Gun recently-ish and came away with a huge crush on Tom Cruise. And 
honestly, it really made me rethink moving out to California. I was like, if this is the kind of, <laughs> of crushes you get, no, thank you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Kaya, love you if you're listening to this, but like, girl, get yourself together. Um, great. Thank you for sharing those things. So moving along from things that we've seen recently and things that are pretty popular right now, Elvis, uh, House of the Dragon, and Top Gun, um, let's get into our second crack at underrated movies. So my choice is That Thing You Do. Uh, This movie came out in 1996. It was written and directed by Tom Hanks, starring Tom Everett Scott, Liv Tyler, Steve Zahn, Tom Hanks, John Jonathan Shack, and Ethan Emery, uh, amongst other folks. This movie had a budget of about $26 million and at the box office made... 34.6 million so not really a success it's just sort of a it happened it sure did uh perhaps maybe breaking even or maybe even not depending on how much money they spent in advertising but like the money they spent in advertising i never heard about this movie except when i actually stumbled upon it which was in high school in my music class but before i actually get too too deep into this movie have y'all seen this before this is my first time i had seen it before i saw it probably bits and pieces on like tnt or other tv stations so i think i've seen the whole movie but this is probably my first time sitting down start to finish uh watching it but familiar with the whole movie great Well, um, for those of you who have not seen this movie and have not even heard of it, that's okay. Uh, It's underrated for a reason. So here's a quick synopsis. I honestly, I can't remember where I took this from. I'm so sorry. Maybe Rotten Tomatoes? Anyway, I didn't write it. It's definitely plagiarized. Anyway, uh, it says, wildly banned manager Mr. White helps Pennsylvania band the uh, wonders achieve big time success when they release a Beatles style pop song in 1964. I think the description actually went on a little bit longer than that, but I was like, eh, sucks. Sorry, Ron Tomatoes. So that's, yeah, that's really what it's about. Tom Hanks wrote that thing you do during the press tour for Forrest Gump out of sheer boredom. And uh, Adam Schles- Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne wrote the actual That Thing You Do song. Uh, he was nominated for a Golden Globe and an Academy Award for it. Quick RIP to him. He died in April 2020 from COVID, mm-hmm. um, which is a really big bummer. But doing that research, I found out that he is cousins with John Bernthal, which is like, can you imagine having John Bernthal as your cousin? Like, what the fuck? Anyway, um, so now we know what the movie's about. You know, a, a couple of fun facts about it. I'd love to hear what you folks thought. Obviously, I'm a fan of this movie. I picked it. So what do you think about that thing you do? I think it's okay. In my mind, I think it's probably aptly rated. There are definitely parts uh, that I enjoyed. I think that there's some good chemistry going on. There's some fun energy throughout the movie that is a very catchy song, um, no doubt. But it's a movie that movies pretty hard for better in some ways and for worse in more ways, I think. Overall, like it's it's a pretty easy breezy ride. Not my favorite movie, but definitely not a 
horrible, can't recommend movie. Uh, so I'm kind of excited to dig in a little deeper and talk about some of the good moments and then some questionable moments in the movie. Well, uh, I suppose I walked away with uh, two big takeaways from this movie, having seen it for the first time. Uh, the first being that, for the first being a positive, I think its production is fantastic. Uh, the second being uh, negative, which I think it's the structure of its story and screenplay is very uh, unconsidered or, or uh, not quite uh, not handled very well, um, which robs uh, characters of a little bit more depth that I would appreciate. Uh, on the whole, though, it was kind of like, you know, for me, it was like kind of right down the middle. Uh, I found it to be a movie that really moved. Uh, but left me wanting more than it had to offer outside of uh, some of its production, I guess. Yeah, I think I have a fondness for this movie just because I have seen it multiple times and like Connor, catch it on TV and we'll usually watch it. And that song, like I, I, I remember that song like being kind of everywhere outside of the world of the movie like the the song was on the radio and like I remember really loving the song and the movie milks that song like you're like okay again it's nine times I never get sick of it because I I I find it just like the perfect 60s pop song uh and I guess while I was watching it this, this recent time I got kind of intrigued by the um the the behind the scenes production and some of the fun stories I also am really impressed for the most part with the um the the play the play acting as in like the uh oh, I'm so sorry if you can hear my cat mm-hmm. <laughs> um but uh what's the actor that plays the drummer Scott uh, Tom Everett Scott Tom Everett Scott Wonderful. And having read that he only took like a month of drumming lessons, I mean, granted, I'm not a drummer, so I don't know, like, you know, the particulars, but I thought everyone looked pretty convincing, uh, you know, for the most part within, within the movie. Uh, and so I thought that was fun. I think that there's definitely some sort of like, uh, sort of dated tropes, uh, and like characterizations that maybe haven't stood the test of time too well. But for the most part, I find this movie really endearing and uh, definitely have a uh, uh, have a place in my heart for for the cast. And uh, yeah, just kind of this sort of it's like a glossy, scrappy movie. Like it clearly had a budget, but it just maybe to Dave's point feels like it's sort of kind of meanders, but like in a, in just a, you're sitting with these characters kind of way. It's like, and they appear and then they disappear. And that's kind of the point of the story is like a band that could have been more, but just sort of dissipated. And as did thousands of other bands that weren't the Beatles uh, or the monkeys at the time, which I find kind of interesting too. Yeah, I agree with everything you all said, um, particularly of all of its pitfalls, but then also like that nostalgia factor. So I stumbled upon this movie uh, in high school during my music class. I absolutely hated this class. The teacher, her name was Mrs. Walters. I'm dropping this because I hated her. Um, She definitely hated children and absolutely like would not 
teach us literally anything. So instead, we'd watch movies uh, that I saw a Christmas story for the first time and Amadeus for the first time because of that class, which like, you know what? Maybe my life is better off with those films there. So perhaps I did gain something from the class, but it certainly wasn't appreciation for music. I can tell you that. Uh, anyway, I probably would not have come across this movie had it not been for that class. I have literally never met people uh, who have brought this movie up. We've never had conversations about it. Anytime I've ever mentioned it, they've been like, I see that know what you're talking about and uh i think my roommates who of course watched this with me uh i was the one to bring this to them as well so i do think that it's perhaps not as well known these days anymore uh why though did i pick this as an underrated movie honestly the movie's not great i think it's good but it's fun and honestly it's just not that deep I know particularly with this podcast, I really get caught up with, um, you know, what makes a good movie and is a good movie a film and and all that. Um, sometimes, you know, uppity nonsense, but good uppity nonsense. Uh, this movie has none of that. It's For me, it's not trying to do anything smart. It's just trying to make you enjoy about two hours. It's totally predictable. It's lighthearted. It's very, very surface level. I do think it's a little long, but it's fun. We watched it. We danced in our seats. Um, and Christine, like you said, every time the song played, we were all just kind of like over and over. So there is something that is a little captivating about it. Maybe it's just because the song is so catchy um, or maybe there's a little bit more, but I did have to dig to the bottom of my interpretive barrel to come up with things to talk about. So I hear all of those criticisms. Um, what do you think about this as an underrated movie? Connor, you already said that it's appropriately rated. Agree, disagree. What are your thoughts? Well, what was the, uh, what was the, I think you have this in your notes. What was the, uh, if, if you haven't said, uh, or if you said already, I apologize. What was the Rotten Tomatoes split versus uh, critics versus audience? Oh, sure. I didn't say it. So uh, critics gave it 93% and the audience gave it 78%. So they're kind of high. Uh, yeah. I find it interesting that it's, it's critically acclaimed more than it is audience acclaimed because I think that this movie, you know, as I was alluding to before, and I'll elaborate on a little later, has some big problems with structure. So I, I think that's an interesting inversion of my expectations when I saw those statistics, because I think it, 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 to me, strikes me as a movie that would be more beloved by fans than critics. So I, I found that surprising. But um, yeah, somewhere in that middle ground, I suppose, is probably appropriate. I don't think it's a bad movie. I just think it's, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'd say it's it's probably appropriately rated somewhere in the middle ground there. I think. Um... It's, I, I think within the sense of like having this movie be resurfaced, it could be seen as underrated. Cause like, yeah, I haven't thought about this movie in a while, but I have seen it multiple times. Like, but it's definitely not anything that I had really considered, but Having this also as like kind of the mid uh, this movie as an example of mid nineties nostalgia for the sixties is also wonderful. And I feel I'm I was trying to think of some other shows or movies 
like maybe I guess this is pre-Pleasantville, but I feel like there were a lot of 90s movies that like look back on the 60s as sort of like that 30-year generation cycle that kind of Hollywood goes through. And so that was kind of fun. Forrest Gump, for example. Oh, there you (laughs) go. Speaking of Tom Hanks, yes. Um, And I love to look at costumes and production design. And I love looking at different decades takes on previous decades and how the present is reflected in how a a set is built or like how costumes are arranged or color palettes and things like that. And so that was also a really fun thing to be thinking about while watching this movie. So back to your question, as far as underrated, I would say that like it's maybe not in people's minds right now, but maybe should be as like a fun time capsule of like nineties looking back at sixties. Yeah, I love that, Christine. I think like visually the the movie is kind of out of this world. Um, there are certain scenes that are just like absolutely stunning. Um, and something that I really like about this, and it's kind of gonna get me to the the only point that I could really dig up here, <laughs> which is like celebrity life behind the curtain. You get to see so much of that, how chaotic it is, how difficult and scary sometimes it can be it's such a whirlwind so the the big overarching overall theme for me of this movie is we have these regular people become the hottest stars of the time and fizzle out as quickly as they showed up and so many times I come back to well what what was the thing that brought them together was it a genuine love of music were they like real musicians or was it more just to get famous and then become I mean no one sets out for this this to be a goal but be eventually become like manufactured celebrities I think what I personally thought is that Jimmy and Guy seem like two people who genuinely you know what not so much Jimmy Guy at the very least certainly passionate, really enjoyed music, had fun while he was playing, and sometimes just wanted to play music just to play, not for anyone, not for anything, but just himself. But this leads me to ask, like, can a band be manufactured and can they still be real musicians or do they lose something in the middle there? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's the uh, boy band craze of the uh, late 1990s. And uh, a lot of those were very, uh, very much manufactured groups. That being said, I think they were all pretty damn good performers who uh, had some good songwriting chops or at least good songwriters behind them. So I don't know. Uh, You could also cite maybe like uh, someone like Malcolm McLaren assembling the Sex Pistols. Most people hate the Sex Pistols, and I respect that opinion, but I think they're pretty all right for a quote-unquote manufactured band. Uh, Horrible people, that should be noted. Uh, But, yeah, I don't know. I um, I guess I don't know that I felt that this movie tackles that too much. Uh, And and it's, it's, it's kind of because I don't feel that I really know these characters as people, which is part of the structure problem uh, that I have with the movie, which I guess I'll, I'll cover a little 
uh, at some point after this question or something. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I didn't really know enough about these characters to understand their intentions or their, their what drives them beyond the surface presentation. So uh, I'm not sure. And I, th- I think it gets a little lost in the sauce of the like the band themselves. When I think there's a super interesting setup with this band, where there's you know somebody's injured, so they have this just kind of rinky dink talent show. They just have to find somebody who can put the drums together. Uh, guy, that's the drummer character, right? So guy just kind of goes off script, is just going fast. So Zombie just feeling his natural rhythm, which we kind of see set up earlier, come into conflict with Jimmy, and I think there's like such an interesting setup with like how this band just kind of came together and then just one person improvised and that created like a really interesting sound. So I thought there was like a lot of really interesting setup with the band dynamics. Um, And I think the movie could have gotten into some interesting ground of like, yeah, they signed with a guy that the first manager was in an RV (laughs) parked outside guy's dad's like appliance store uh, who just does like the eerie or like Western Pennsylvania kind of region. So I don't know. It's I think it wants to dip into these themes of like, what does it mean to be a musician? What does it mean to like be in a band? But getting Tom Hanks just getting lost in the we're a band and we have this good song and we're going on tour. All right. An hour later, now we're back to like character dynamics. It's kind of what it to me, I think, wanted to hit those themes of what does it mean to be in a band? But it gets lost in the like the glamour of a band on the rise. Um, just to just to clarify, I asked this question like in general because there has been so many bands that have just been put together because they look good together, their voices sound good together, or they can play an instrument or two, not necessarily relating back to the movie. Because there are so many bands that it might surprise you that didn't know each other or auditioned to be in bands. Sometimes when I think about uh, Ronnie James Dio and how many bands that he fronted, um, it's wild, right? Uh, Even just um, Black Sabbath. But is the point of this movie to have really any big themes? I don't know. I I mean, how much could it be if he's writing this in between interviews on a press junket, right? Like, is it just as simple as we're going to watch a band rise and fall because none of their hearts are really in it? it kind of feels that way for me. I think one of the things... And maybe I think the movie could have developed this a little bit more, but I think one of the ideas is that like band, like the role that chance and luck and just sort of happenstance play in the development of a band and their success or their failures. Connor, you mentioned the first drummer, Giovanna Rubisi, love him. Uh, breaking his arm and then they got to get Guy in there. And that's how he ends up joining the band. He ends up just because he wants to play faster, completely transforming what will go on to becoming their hit single, which was supposed to be a slow ballad. And then mm-hmm. actually gets sped up and then becomes, you know, the hit. He Tommy um, Ramones it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also, I feel like that element is like a tropey thing and especially music biopics, like make it faster. And then suddenly, uh, you know, it's the hit that every, all the producers want. But I think that the movie touches on those ideas. Uh, and uh, an interview I had read said that Hanks was inspired in part by reading an interview with a 
drummer that was brought in when Ringo Starr like was feeling sick on some tour in Australia. And this other drummer was brought in to play with the Beatles for five concerts. And the interview was with this uh, stand-in drummer who was like, yeah, it was amazing. And then Tom Hanks was like thinking about like, yeah, what would have, what would that experience have really been like to just be suddenly playing with the Beatles because Ringo Starr got sick. And then I guess it, that idea unfolded to what if, you know, that drummer was brought in and that would change the trajectory of his entire life forever because he joined what would go on to be one of the most famous bands in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it, it kind of touches on these, like, uh, as I said, like the, the role that just kind of mundane situations play in changing the course of like somebody's life or a band's life. And the movie doesn't, the movie sort of hits all the sort of like biopic beats, but kind of like in a anticlimactic way, which might be a flaw in the screenplay or might actually be kind of supporting this idea of people sort of bopping along, you know, living their lives, things happen and circumstances happen without much fanfare. It's probably a weaker screenplay is the reason, but I kind of liked that it sort of stayed kind of even keel the whole way. Christine, I had that same thought because it is a story of a one hit wonder. You know, this notion that like, this is their story. They made this one song together. It was made popular and then it just didn't work out. And like, if that's, if, if that's your intention uh, in terms of the broader story you're telling, that's interesting. But it lacks the drama necessary for a strong screenplay. <laughs> this is the structure thing, I suppose. It, it feels, it felt to me like, it felt to me like, you know, this is Tom Hanks's first directorial uh, entry and uh, first screenwriting entry. Uh, it feels like he should have sought out more notes on the screenplay to me because it it feels as though the movie starts, we get the rising action of the end of the first act, and then it stays that for like an hour and change skips the second act midpoint entirely and arrives at a climax. The problem with that is like the rising action of the end of the first act, which is pretty much the entirety of this movie, is like things kind of working out toward a direction before it gets to a midpoint where there's a sort of reversal. But absent that midpoint, you don't really have much drama when it gets to the climax because you haven't built drama into it. Like I, you, For me, I learned about character in film through their responses to conflict, challenges, and crises. And this movie's beats are kind of, it goes well, and they move on. It goes well, and they move on. It goes well, and they move on. And then all of a sudden, they're having a fight. And I found that a little tonally jarring and structurally jarring. Um, I know there's definitely some stuff that's seeded, but it doesn't feel like the drama's there. Like, there's the will-they-won't, they have two characters. But I don't feel really much tension there, which is the basis of a will-they-won't-they. They. So. I don't know. I just think the screenplay, uh, the structure of the screenplay was a little too amateurish and not thought out enough. Yeah, Dave, I think that structurally everything you brought up, I really agree with, though. I do think that there are moments of tension that actually really comes back to are these people musicians or are they just in it to be famous? And I think when it comes down to it, like the only person who's there because of the music, because they're passionate is Guy. Jimmy is just there to be famous. Um, and the, the But he's also the I, only one that wants to write more material. 
Well, that, you know what? That's what's complicated. But I really think that even though there are times where he's like, I want to get into the studio, I don't know if that's necessarily because he wants to play music and he wants to perform or it's just to continue um, like the legacy to continue to build this brand. I, I don't know. I don't actually know. But I think that this is where the tension comes from. Um, every time Jimmy is told no, uh, every time Mr. White, Tom Hanks, their new manager from Playtone, every time he makes a decision and doesn't talk to the rest of the band, right? He changes the name. He changes the outfits, gives them new instruments, gives Guy a whole persona called Shades. Um, <laughs> and he even brings Faye along, who is Jimmy's girlfriend, um, creates like a role for her. That's something that's kind of surprising how sort of welcomed Faye was, not by Jimmy, I'm almost never by Jimmy, um, but by Mr. White. And so I think like those, those are the moments of tension. And also like the movie starts with tension, right? Like uh, Guy changes the melody and the tempo and Jimmy's furious. And I also think like Guy being the standout, being the one that everyone's drawn to really ir irritates uh, Jimmy as well. And that it does like culminate into the, the band breaking up in that scene where um, they're doing their first TV spot. It's at the, the Hollywood television show. <laughs> and when they're introducing all of the, um, the members of the band underneath Jimmy's name, it comes a uh, be careful ladies. He's engaged and he flips out. He, you know, accuses Faye of lying. Um, and I think that he's blowing up in this moment, like not just because the engaged thing, but because it was a surprise. It was another decision that he didn't have a part of and in. So do I think that those are always fleshed out and always wonderful? No. But I, I think that those are moments of tension that we see from the beginning. I think in another interview that I, or maybe it was the same, and by interview, I think it was just like sound bites, uh, quoted sound bites in a like top 20 behind the scenes facts about that thing you do or whatever. Well, number eight or whatever something was Tom said uh, Tom Hanks said that in, in an interview that he wanted no bad guys in his movie which now that I'm thinking about it probably didn't help his screenplay that he went in thinking I don't want any bad guys because it's interesting because when you, Mr. White is first introduced as the produ big time producer you think oh okay this he's going to be the bad guy. He's going to change them. And he does change them. And there is some tension even between producer and players. But for the most part, he turns into this sort of uh, wise mentor almost, which is a really interesting choice, especially when you see a lot of other music biopics. A lot of times it's the producer or the sort of corporate level folks that are the antagonists who train, who change people, who impose their own vision and, you know, cause terrible things to happen and, and do bad things. But in this case, it's like white 
is doesn't really turn out to be that. He does give them their costumes. He gives shades the shades. He definitely like cleans them up for branding and marketing. But I think Hanks just wanted this character to be the Hanks type of role, the like good sort of all-knowing uh, mentor, kind of like uh, fucking a league of their own and stuff like that. So it might have been just like Tom Hanks was like, I'm going to write myself into this screenplay. I'm going to take the role that would traditionally be the bad guy. But because I'm Tom Hanks, I'm not going to be the bad guy. And we'll see what happens. And I think that's kind of where the conflict happens or the conflict doesn't happen. Uh, and maybe tries to get put on Jimmy. But as you guys have laid out earlier, the the Jimmy blow up at the end makes no sense because it hadn't, you, you see moments where he might be jealous of shades, but you, the relationship between Faye and Jimmy at worst was like kind of, like flatlined, but suddenly he's like absolutely terribly cruel to her, which, you know, people do random bad things, but I just, that felt a little bit out of the blue. Like to turn Jimmy suddenly into the bad guy. Like almost, yeah, in in my read, and, and I agree, it's, it's kind of lacking the weight to give it the momentum that gets us there, maybe. Because the, the beats are there, but I don't, I don't feel their weight, I guess, maybe. Yeah, the beats start getting introduced maybe two-thirds into the movie as like once he becomes famous. And I guess, yeah, maybe that's says something that it their relationship is fine until Jimmy gets a little taste of fame. But but his blow-up definitely seemed to come from left field. That's so interesting because I so disagree. I think like you could tell that. Jimmy was more focused on himself from the very beginning, even with how um, Faye is working the, the till when they make the record and just some of the ways that he talks to her. Um, and when he leaves her to go talk to Diane, uh, when he doesn't pay attention that she's sick, hasn't really talked to her, noticed her on the airplane. I feel like that was definitely coming up. But you know what? To each their own. Maybe it's because I was expecting it. Maybe a question I have is, do you feel that those beats are emotionally borne out through those characters? Maybe they. I think, like, honestly, like, I don't really give a shit about Jimmy. I think that he, like, starts as a terrible person, ends as a terrible person. Um, and it's only through the side that we see, right? Like, I'm sure if we had, you know, more about him, it wouldn't be like that. But, you know, Faye is just presented as this, like, like ethereal, wonderful girlfriend who everyone just loves and fawns over except for Jimmy. And, you know, when she's getting dressed and all dolled up and, you know, you can tell that this is a big significant moment for her. Um, yeah, like it's it's like a gut punch when that happens because, you know, you feel bad for her. Christine, I think it's interesting that you brought up Tom Hanks not wanting anybody to be the bad guy because that does feel, going back to Dave's earlier point, of like an amateur screenplay, and that feels like something an amateur screenwriter would like want for their screenplay. Because Jimmy doesn't have to be a bad guy. He can be totally understandable 
as somebody who is dedicated to the craft later toward the, I think in that moment, Jimmy, you were always the genius. Was he? When did we see him be the genius? Um, well, he wrote I think, all of their music. Right. And I, but like, that's at the very beginning of the movie. And then I feel like Hanks does a poor job of following up and checking in on Jimmy. Like he doesn't have to be the bad guy. Like, I think it could have been a really fulfilling moment of like, um guy now shades is sort of like oh whatever this is cool like i'm just playing the drums i'm having fun and jimmy's like and there it says there's like it just feels like kind of like lip service without like checking in on jimmy more regularly as he's trying i mean it'd be interesting if jimmy was the main character of this movie who eventually turns sour on his more lighthearted bandmates but instead, it's more interested in Tom Hanks and Guy and Guy having his Hollywood tangent, meeting famous people, when kind of leaving Jimmy and all of that a bit to the side. It's fun to see how we just have these different perspectives of this movie because you're, you all are bringing some stuff up that I haven't really considered and it's making me want more from this film, which I think is a, a great thing. Um, and it, and it feels like we've come down like really heavy on this movie. Um, maybe deservedly, maybe not, but, uh, I think something that is important to mention, and we kind of touched on it before is the, the production of the, the film. And Dave, I know that you specifically wanted to mention that. Oh Yeah. I mean that my my big positive takeaway from this movie the production's great uh the costume design set design set dressing prop department they, they it all really steeps you in the era does a really good job of transporting you into this time and place I I I don't feel that it takes a lot of like chance it doesn't take a lot of chances in terms of cinematography or anything like that necessarily that I can recall but it does feel thoroughly considered given what it's presenting like it's its environment is extremely convincing and that's a huge credit to the production department nor does it feel like nostalgia bait like it's so easy to go for like all the huge 60s tropes when it just feels like especially when they're eerie that this is like a lived-in kind of place where if this feels like 1964 um I know we're just so inundated with like 80s nostalgia and like every movie studio and director ever milking anything 1980s where this is like kind of refreshing of like this is like just a movie taking place in 1964 reveling in it. But it uh, I think for a lot of the movie, it doesn't feel like it's just nostalgia bait for the 60s. It's like there's a reason why the story's happening in 1964, not just because we have nostalgia for it and nostalgia will sell. It feels a little like nostalgia. Like I would just push back on that a little, but, but I think it's, I find it enchantingly. I find the elements of nostalgia enchanting because, you know, guy works in an appliance shop that his dad owns. And I feel like a lot of the scenes are like lovingly reflective of like all the fun appliances that were so sixties in the way that, uh, you know, different types of, gadgets and appliances were sold i think that i'm trying to yeah i i I feel like it has because i feel like in tom hanks's hands things are just gonna be nostalgic anyways uh in his in his little hanks hands (laughs) um but i do agree connor that it doesn't feel um as cloyingly calcul like calcing calculatedly nostalgic 
And also, yeah, it, well, maybe in its its effort to, uh, if if that was one of its aims to you know elicit nostalgia of that era, then um, it certainly does so in a relatively sanitized way. Uh, I mean, the bass player who I do really appreciate as like a band joke is just called the bass player of the whole movie because like it's a pretty good musician joke. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, we, we come to find out that he's joining, uh, I think it's the Marines or, well, the mil- some branch of the military as the Vietnam War is sort of like c- coming to the fore on the horizon is becoming a big thing. And no one really has any feelings about it. It's just sort of a fact that he is a Marine at a time when there is going to be, uh, what is universally regarded historically as an American quagmire. <laughs> Uh, it's it, it's like it's just interesting to include that and not say anything about it. I think. But the, and then there's a passing reference that Guy also served in the military. Did you guys catch that? And I'm like, wait a second, how old are they? Are we talking Korean War? In which case, that's what like late fifties. Mm-hmm. I guess if they're mid twenty, yeah, I guess so. But to your point, Dave, yeah, two references to either serving in the military or like, like serving abroad in the military. And then the sort of foreshadowing of Vietnam to come, but nothing to say about it is kind of an interesting choice as well. Well, I don't think that's this, it's this movie's intention to say something about the nature of American geopolitical interference. And it's not his job to either. Yeah. Well, and it's like, the it's like, Oh my God, there's a version of this movie where the bass player goes to Vietnam and you're playing Creedence Clearwater revival on the radio <laughs> of the helicopter. And then he's like, Oh, I miss my band. And then his helicopter gets shot down or his fingers get blown off. There's like a, a horror, like a so tropey version where he goes to war and is missing his band and his change. And I actually think this leads to a great character moment where Tom Hanks, like, you really don't know where Mr. White stands. And then he's like, oh, well, I just enlisted in the Marines. And then as he leaves, he's, oh, well, you're going to need a replacement. And he goes, Semper Fi, because he also must have served Korea, whatever. And I thought that was a really great insight into Mr. White of like, okay, he's not just the pure money grubbing. Like, there's a different side to him. And I thought that was used as a really great character moment very early in meeting this character who, as we brought up, would stereotypically be the money-grubbing evil producer who just milks the band and the people for all their worth and then dumps them for the next hot thing. Wait, Connor, now that you mention it, wouldn't it be insane if this movie was in the same universe as Forrest Gump and the bass player goes to Vietnam and you see Tom Hanks as Forrest Gump? Like, it's two people in the same universe, yeah. I I want to see it. Somebody needs to make the that thing you do Forrest Gump universe happen. Okay. The T H U. Yes. The guys in my platoon were named so and so and Bubba and Tex oh. and this guy from a band called the Wonders. <laughs> the Oneaters. Yeah, the Oneaters. Yeah, right. <laughs> be a diehard. Yeah. You know, I think the the reference to serving in the military is like a very Tom Hanks thing. There's never going to be a movie or anything that he's in that doesn't somehow mention war or the military. <laughs> so, um, the Polar Express does that mention? Hey, there's a Marines? war on Christmas, baby. Yeah, so 
Ooh, uh, damn that war on Christmas. I have not seen the Polar Express probably since it came out. Um, but anyway, th- that is very typical and unique to to Tom Hanks. And something else that I just kind of want to wrap this conversation up with is, yeah, this is Tom Hanks's first crack at writing and directing a movie. And he's going to put a lot of his personal beliefs in there. He's going to put a lot of himself. And that includes people he loves. So Rita Wilson makes a cameo appearance. Well, actually, like a a long appearance. Um, His daughter and son, Colin, are also in the movie. Colin Hanks is so young and so cute. So precious when he's walking Faye up the red carpet. I was like, is that Colin Hanks? Oh, little baby. Uh, but some other folks, um, Peter Scolari, Clint Howard, Brian Cranston. I don't know if that's like a cameo or if it's just like his role, but I was like, so it's fun and it's I don't know. I love when directors do that when they have their friends in movies because it's like, you know what? Yeah, do that. This is your thing. Make it what you want it to be. Any like cameos that I missed that you noticed? Charlize Theron is his girlfriend, guy's girlfriend in the beginning, who then falls in love with a hunky dentist. I thought that was actually very funny. (laughs) I mean, he was hot. Like, let's say he was hunky. He was. Can I talk about fan? Oh, go ahead. Christine, go ahead. I was going to change topics. I just was wondering who their number one fan is. He looked very familiar. Yeah. The annoying fan. I'm sure I could look this up. He's just played like the annoying guy in a lot of other movies. Oh, yeah, maybe. He was in um, he was uh, he has an appearance in uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia at one point, playing oh. one of the McPoyles. If that's helpful he, to I, anyone. I see him as like a like. Oh, I hate to say this, but like a hillbilly. Yeah, the McFoyles. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. I or like a B Squad Steve Buscemi. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else folks wanted to talk about that thing you do? Actually, hold on. Uh, I, I just want to tell listeners uh, something very funny that Dave said uh, before we started recording. It was just me and him on the Zoom, and I lost my notes. And Dave said that thing. You, that thing you lost. Yeah. Is that what you said? It made me laugh a lot. Uh, anything else people wanted to bring up before we say goodbye to that thing you do? Um, I wanted to bring up my favorite scene, which is when they get on the radio for the first time in Erie. And then Liv Tyler hears them on the radio. And then she's running down. She collects a bass player who's walking out of the recruitment center feeling pretty good about himself. So there's like a little bit of foreshadowing there. Uh, they go to the appliance store. They turn all the radios on. The uh, two other people show up in the car, like the blaring. Um, so I just thought that that was. I just want to mention that was a really fun, um, really high energy scene that just really sold. Like the like, it just you just felt the, that excitement of like, you know, your song is on the radio. Like just how cool, um, how cool just that idea is, and these kids from Erie like making it onto like a local radio station or even Western Pennsylvania radio station. Uh, that was just, I thought, just a really stellar scene. Well, especially as Guy is working in his dad's radio store. So they have so many radios to turn on, which really adds to it. That's pretty it's great. Cute. Yeah. And, and when they're first on where TV. The, yeah, that too. That's and the whole nice family comes the together. kind of come around, yeah. One of my favorite scenes is when they start to get famous, but they have, they have to uh, play a band in a movie. 
And it's one of those like bikini beach party, classic 60s uh, bad movies, but always somehow feature actors dancing on a beach. And they play their, I can't remember their band name, but it's like the super shrimper something, something great band name. And they're dressed in sailor suits playing all instruments. They don't play like the saxophone and the you know keys or whatever. And uh, I just read that the director, so in that scene, the actor who's the, the person that's playing the director of the bikini beach party is Jonathan Dem, who did silence of the lambs. And <laughs> so it's kind of funny, like a, a very like, who would also direct Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. So it seemed like Hanks got, you know, his crew out and kind of was also making some like meta jokes because uh, there's, while they're shooting the Bikini Beach party, the band is clearly fake playing and then the music stops and then they, and they stop fake playing and then it's kind of a nice wink to the fact that the actors in that thing you do are also fake playing while they're on stage. So I thought that was kind of a fun little uh, kind of meta joke. Um, And a good Jimmy scene too, where it's like, we're in Hollywood. We're not actually recording. We're not actually making music. We're just in a movie just to make money. Like that's a good Jimmy scene. Yeah. Mm. Um, I thought everything, I thought that movie was, or I thought that scene was really funny. I guess I'd add real quick at the end that, uh, uh, I guess we've discussed whether or not we feel the film is appropriately or underrated. Uh, it was underrated to me because I'd never seen it. So thank you, Sam. Thank you, Dave. And thank you all for watching this movie, for having this conversation. Definitely check this film out if you've got like a spare was it like almost two hours and you just want something easy to watch uh and i think that's it yeah that's the movie that's it that's all folks um so we will be back next week talking about another underrated film can't wait for you to listen to what that is i was gonna try to come up with a pun but i i just couldn't think of it in the moment anyway uh follow us on our socials we Butter with that on Instagram. Kind of excited. He's got a pun. I have a pun. Okay. That thing you ew. Oh, sweet Jesus. It is funny. What? Think about it. It's a clue for next week. You have to explain the thing you ew. Ew. Um, E W E. E W E. It's a joke in the movie, too. I'll think this over. <laughs> Sweet Jesus. Uh, follow us on Butter on Instagram at Butter with That, Twitter, Butter with That One, and send us an email at Butter with That Podcast at gmail.com. Have a good whatever. Bye. This has been a Movie John podcast.